Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card. I'm your host, Zach Ahmed. And joining me in the studio today, we've got Amina Ziad and Ahmed Youssef. Say hey, guys. Hey. Hey. <laughs> okay, that was a bit extravagant. That, that was, but that was right. a very long hey. <laughs> all right, good. You do you. All right, so before we begin, we'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. Uh, we acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet today, and we pay our respects to the elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the year. Today we have a special interview with Zulfia Tufa and an ode to 2015 with some of the stories that raised our attention. I'm Gary Foley, and you're listening to The Race Card. We've got Zulfia Tufa in studio. It's, it's a pleasure to have you in studio, Zulfia. We've been trying this for a little bit. Uh, thanks for coming on the race card. Thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. So I, I guess um, what I want to talk to you is a few projects that, you, that you, you're doing. But before I talk about your projects, why did you start YouTubing? I started YouTubing because I wanted to um, I just help people on a more practical level. Because um, when you post or when you write things or like upload photos, it's very different to you know, a video. You can get a lot more across. And your personality also comes across a lot more. And you've really rose in, in profile and, and prominence over, the, I guess, the last year and a bit. Um, why do you think that is? I don't know. You should answer that. I have no <laughs> idea. How did you hear about me? <laughs> oh, no, it was just like similar circles, okay. people posting your, 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 um, your hijabify me yep. posts. And, yep. and it started from there, didn't it? Yeah, I think, um, to be honest, I probably the feedback that I get from people is that they find the stuff that I post helpful. And um, also, I think people are looking for things to, you know, like keep up to date with, especially in Melbourne, because locally there aren't as many people as there might be overseas and things like that. So it's always cool if you find someone locally who caters to what you're looking for. Because you started very, like you said, a practical kind of, you know, telling people how to do the hijab or how to get some style and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then you've kind of merged it to a bit political uh, recently. <laughs> slightly. Yeah, slightly. Brown Muslim girl. Yeah. Talk to us about that. So I feel like I have a split personalities. I've got the hijab stylist and I've got, um, you know, other things going. But one of the ones I'm very passionate about is the brown Muslim girl because um, the way that came about was I was quite tired of having things, you know, like when you feel like people are being racist towards you. And um, I was getting tired of it and I thought, I really wish there was someone who would actually tell people how it feels to be a Muslim female, you know. And on top of that, I'm also African as well. So, um, yeah, and then I, I'm, I, after a while I just realised that no one's going to, like, why am I waiting for someone, you know. I'll just do it myself. So I started. And um, to be honest, like, interestingly enough, I only record those videos with my iPhone. The rest I do with a proper HD camera. And they're more popular than my other hijabify me videos. <laughs> I think people really can relate to them. Uh, so, uh, why do you think people can relate to them? You're talking about an experience yep. that you say, um, being a brown Muslim woman, yep. um, navigating through through a very kind of very white um, monoculture in Australia, and having to to negotiate your culture and and your tradition in that specific context. Yeah, so I feel like. Um just rephrase exactly what you meant. By yeah. <laughs> well, just being like being in Australia, for example, yeah. 
and and how do you feel like why do people resonate with that in particular exactly or, because because oh. i don't think there'll be a lot of people like yourself yeah. in the mainstream or, yeah. or, or or talking on on television or on radio or anything like that um to see and i guess right now we're in a stage where social media is opening the market a bit more yeah. it's opening in space for for people like yourself and others to to kind of yeah. have a voice yeah yeah well i do feel like one of the reasons why people resonate with what i do is because I think if you think of the the name, you know, the brown Muslim girl, that's not really who I am. Like, I'm not a brown Muslim girl. I have, like, a lot more to me than that. And I don't refer to myself as that, but that's what people refer to me as, you know, like people who talk about me when I'm not there or want to describe me or, you know, so people recognize who I am. Oh, she's the, the, the brown the brown was, you know, like the girl with the thing on her head. And I think um, just recently, um, I think there was a Star Wars launch in Sydney and um, people were getting Susan Carland mixed up with Anissa, um, Anissa Buckley. And they were writing um, that Susan Carland had came to the event, blah, blah, blah. But it really wasn't. It was someone else. It was Anissa, but they're both wearing a headscarf. And the way I see it is the only reason why people got them mixed up is because they wear a headscarf. And when you wear a headscarf, you're not, you're not your identity. You're just a brown Muslim girl. Now, both of those women have white color skin, but I feel like they're still brown Muslim girls because that's what people see them as, regardless of, like, they're both doctors, they're both very education, ed- educated women, but people are just going to see them as just, like, one stereotype of brown Muslim girls. I get, women, yeah. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I mean, it's talked about it as well, about even though someone might not be a person of color, just by being Muslim and, and being mm. visibly Muslim, you are also... I guess profiled and, yeah. and 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 you you feel prejudiced because of that, and of and that's something that's happening here more than ever. Do you feel that you're you're being more politicized just just by being yourself right yeah, now? Yeah, because wearing a hijab is a political statement right now, almost, isn't it? Like it's meant to be a spiritual connection with you and God, and a way to show that, but. It's become something that's very political and people think that if you wear a hijab, you support ISIS or, you know, like people think things like that. Whereas it's really quite the opposite. I mean, it doesn't really represent any of your views about like political views at all. Um, and I could have completely different political views to someone else who wears a headscarf. It just, you know, the scarf isn't something that really, you know, it doesn't really say much about your politics. Why that's do you think people homogenise um, politics and, and the way people dress? Because I think that like, Seeing a Muslim person, like if I think, if I say, what comes to your mind when you think of a Muslim female? In Australia, they would probably say someone who's brown, someone who wears a thing on her head. That's what a Muslim, you know. So I feel like that. And then we become um, sort of, because we're the most obvious Muslims, you know what I mean, with a headscarf. You can be a guy, you can be a girl without a headscarf and people won't necessarily identify you as that. So you don't need to carry that baggage, but we do. Yeah. How do you feel carrying that baggage? It's heavy, man. The baggage is heavy <laughs> and I hate it. But at the end of the day, it's, I find you know making these videos are fun. So I'm just waiting for things to happen to me. I make more videos. Um, so I get a few questions from other women of color, um, Muslim women of color, who are thinking of donning the headscarf. But one of the things that they seem to talk about often is the fear that they have that yeah. they are going to be profiled and they are going to be attacked. So, of course, they find themselves in this you know, in this strange catchment where they are stuck. They want to practice, but at the same time, they feel like there is something that's stopping them and there could be potential harm if they do. What would your um, advice be to those women? Okay. Um, In terms of giving advice to them, I don't feel like I'm the right person because I've been wearing a scarf for such a long time that the way I see a hijab and how confident I am in it would be very different to how someone who never wears it and puts it on. Like We come from a very different background. But having said that, I do work with a lot of women. I do style like hijab styling for a lot of women and I've had many discussions. And, um, you know, I just feel like first and foremost, when you put on a hijab, it should be for God. You should have that, like, you should have the right intentions. And I think if you do it for that reason, then you can sort of handle everything else. But if you do it because society is pressuring you or your family thinks that's, that's, the, right, that's the right thing you should do or your husband or something like that, um, you will sort of find reasons to make it, like, to find it something difficult. Whereas if you're passionate about it and you want to do it, then um, I think that you can get through anything. And personally, personally, I feel like people these days are being... Um, 
treated in a really bad way just for being a Muslim. Like there are Muslims who are being killed for being Muslims. And I think that I can handle wearing a scarf. I can take that, um, you know, whatever people are prepared to dish out for me. And, you know, before we're talking about it being a political thing, sometimes I, I, one of the reasons I have to say that I do keep it on is also a political reason because, like, how who are you to tell me what to wear or what not to wear? You know what I mean? So, like, yes, I want to wear it and I'm going to wear it regardless of what people say. And if people aren't comfortable with that, then that's really something that they need to work out, not me. You talk about politics and you're just coming back from a pretty political um, protest, the Oromo yeah. protest, and, yeah. and being Oromo. Yeah. Talk to me about the politics in Utopia and how that, I guess, um, I guess how that, I guess, adds to your identity. So, um... Uh, in terms of my identity, I identify both as being Oromo as well as being Turkish, so um, very much with both sides. Um, but in terms of the Oromo side specifically, I feel like um, right now the Oromo people are being um, persecuted and two million Oromo people are being um, forced out of their land in Ethiopia at the moment. Um, and this, there's a lot of students who are protesting and they're actually being murdered and killed by the government. So basically, I feel passionate about you know trying to do whatever I can to sort of help bring spread awareness about that so I think um, you know when something about your personality or your identity is threatened or challenged you feel a lot more passionate about it or you find reasons to learn more and I guess that's where passion comes from knowledge so um, yeah it's something I'm very passionate about and I think it feeds into what I do because like it's a big part of who I am yeah how does that inform your politics because being Oromo, Oromo yeah. people are indigenous to Ethiopia yeah um, are persecuted um, have their land stolen from them. There's a lot of, um, you can find a lot of similarities to the indigenous struggle in Australia. Yeah. How does that, I guess, influence and, 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 and inform your politics? So for me, I personally feel like I really resonate with how the um, indigenous people feel in Australia because even though I uh, was not born um, where my father is from, I still feel just as strongly. And I feel that there's many, many like parallels and similarities between the two because it's basically the ind- indigenous people of the country um, uh, not getting the same rights as the people who came there afterwards, often Set- illegally. Settler yeah. colonialism, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And, and I guess talking about growing up in diaspora, I know um, diaspora is a big word nowadays. People talking yeah. about being diaspora, being away from the homeland. You yeah. are in diaspora in two senses: the Turkish diaspora and the yeah. Oromo diaspora. How yeah. do you? How how's it been growing up in diaspora? Um, it's funny. The first time I came across that word, I was calling it diaspora. So, and I just realised now how that it sounds don't worry, so much I did class. The exact same thing. Diaspora. I'm like I said. I, like, I, 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 like, I said diaspora too. Yeah. But okay. someone said like Ahmed, diaspora. It, I'm like it sounds diaspora. so much more classy. Like yeah. That. <laughs> Okay, um, so uh, I guess growing up, I feel like um, personally, I feel like interestingly growing up, I really felt like I was from, like when people ask me, are you from, where are you from? I would say I'm Turkish and I'm Oromo. Like I would never say I'm Australian because I was felt really like I'd never been overseas and I really felt like that's who I was, that's where I was from. But then interestingly, I went to Ethiopia and I visited my, um, my husband's family and my dad's family. And I loved the experience and it taught me so much about who, where my roots, like, you know, about my roots. But I realized that I am actually, I am Australian. And I was, a lot of the values, like we shared a lot of values, but I felt like a lot of the values that were taught and brought up with in Australia um, are slightly different. And I feel like, not that they're better or worse, but they're just slightly different. Like, for example, how, um, you know, what's socially acceptable and what's not, what you're wearing and what you, you know what I mean? Like, things like that. And I felt like, it was only when I went there that I realized that, you know, I am Australian because before I never felt Australian, but not Australian in terms of the stereotype of what, you know, Australian means, like, you know, like having the flag tattooed on you or, you know, but it was more for me like um, what I really liked was trying to give people a fair go as much as you can. Like that was something I really felt like I resonated with, but I didn't always see that reflected overseas. That, that's my personal experience of it, I think. Do you feel being diaspora, your identity in, in a sense, is kind of like you, you said you never felt like being Australian. Yeah. Is it in a sense that you don't necessarily feel like you belong in Australia? Yeah. But you don't necessarily belong to where your parents are from? Yeah, so I it, definitely do not belong to where my parents are from because when I went there, I felt like I just didn't feel like I belonged there. And having said that, I wasn't there long enough. Um, but also, like in terms of belonging into Australia, I really believe that to belong somewhere, it needs to be um, like a two way process. People need to accept you. 
and you need to want to be there to really belong somewhere. So I can't really say, you know, like I belong here if people don't necessarily want you there. And that's how I feel in Australia, often very unwanted as someone who identifies as being a Muslim because many Australians think that that sort of clashes, you can't be both at the same time, whereas really one's your nationality, one's your religion. Um, So I feel like... I don't feel very Australian in terms of what the stereotype is of being an Australian, but I do feel like this is my country, this is my identity, um, and I see Australia growing up in Dandenong, living in Footscray now. For me, Australia is like very multicultural, the way I've grown up anyway, and I, and I experience that, and I feel like that is more who I am. I'm so used to living with people from different backgrounds, different cultures, and, you know, and I feel like I experience... Yeah, that's how I experience it. Can it's I ask I you? Can- how can, do you feel? Like, I'd actually really like to know how oh, you feel. Well, with me, it's, yeah. it, it's kind of, um, I don't necessarily feel Australian per se. And yeah. a lot of the time I, I've spoken to people when they go abroad, yeah. people highlight that they're Australian. They opposed to when you're in Australia, for yeah. example. If I, went, if I went abroad, for example, and I've heard this a number of times, um, and I did when I went to Kenya, a lot of people said, oh, Ahmed, you're, you're the Australian, oh, you're, okay, the, yeah. you're from the West and, and yeah. that kind of thing. But necessarily, I don't necessarily feel like I belong here and, and here the politics in that, Australia, right? Yeah, here yeah. in Australia. Yeah. And, and that comes down to um, wanting to belong, yeah. um, being accepted to belong, mm. and, and all the and all the things that come with being Australian and, yeah. and, that, and that rhetoric that comes with them, that, that faux patriotism kind of thing. Yeah. But also, I feel like in diaspora, we're, we're in this kind of two-way kind of... A lot of people call it third culture, uh, third culture kids. Yeah. So we're kind of like, we're not in where um, our quote-unquote homeland is but yeah. and we're not we're in a place where we're not necessarily accepted and our our, our being here as you said is political yeah, yeah. Um, so exactly. so I'm so it's kind of like being nomadic in a sense and and I resonate with that idea of nomad being nomadic um, Somalia Somalia is being very nomadic mm. people and that sort of thing so I, I guess That's in the sense yeah I've never actually thought of like um, really thought about in terms of being a nomad or not be belonging to one place in particular, but it's an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah. I actually think it's oh, well, for me anyway. It's it's a bit of the opposite. Like whenever I, I go overseas, like I, I was in Europe last January, and I I tend to sort of show off the yeah. fact that I'm Australian. Like okay. I do have a, a sense of pride in the good parts of being Australian. Like you know, as you said, having a fair go and things like that. Like. Yeah. Whenever I'm talking to my um, international friends, I'm like, yeah, this is what Australia's done, and Australia's done this, and Australia's this, and da da da. Um, but then when I come back home, I kind of put away all of that good stuff because that's, I mean, that's white Australia's job to show off all of the great things that Australia's doing. But yeah. then I show off, it's kind of my job to show off, well, not show off, but, you know, to, to give a voice to all the bad things that Australia's doing. So I'm kind mm. of the reverse when I come back home. Mm. I kind of, I kind of feel like, I don't know. Like th- th- this is just my opinion. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like ashamed if I do identify as Australian because, because of the baggage that oh, we carry. Beca- oh, because because it's settled colonial yep. um, land. This is indigenous land, obviously, yeah. and, and that kind of thing. And feel like how can I yeah, identify course, as being especially Australian? with what we've been doing recently yeah. and our reputation, like like you know in the just in general, like how we've been with refugees and sending the boats back and all of that, you know. So I definitely see where you're coming from in that respect. <laughs> yeah. It was, but yeah. It, yeah, I know. But but also it's just, I guess Australia is reforming. They, the, the whole concept of being Australian needs to be reformed yeah. in a sense. And it, obviously the people that need to be the people reforming it is, and at the forefront are Indigenous people and leading that change, if you will. But... At the moment, it looks very They're not unlikely. They've given a platform, though. Yeah, like, it's it, very difficult it, it to is put very that di- responsibility because they don't have that platform. You yeah. know, it, it is yeah. our review show today, and mm. and just thinking about things that happened this year, the forced closures of Indigenous people, yeah. um, in in Western Australia and, and, and everywhere else. Yeah, that is what I'll remember for 2015. Yeah, yeah, I know. Thanks for coming on the show, no though. Worries. Thank you. We, we we went a few places, and but it was but it was good. I, yeah, I think discussions like talking about belonging identity yeah. and especially diaspora now diaspora is such a big word it's a buzzword especially with me i think i was talking to someone over the weekend and they said to me uh the somali diaspora per capita yeah. just by how many people are there um are among at least the top four or five mm. diasporas uh, of people in the world yeah yeah and 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 it's like yeah, where is home mm, exactly um i have a very interesting experience with being born into diaspora. Um, so my parents are Filipino and Sri Lankan, 
and they were temporary um, migrant workers in Saudi Arabia. So I was effectively born into diaspora as well. And uh, I don't have a Saudi passport, even though I lived for 18 years. Um, so it's very interesting when you mentioned about being nomadic. Um, but also, I just wanted to ask, is there a feeling of pain or the feeling that you, because you're no longer in your homeland, there is a sense of missing it, like you want to know it, but at the same time, you do not, you, you don't know it, you don't know what you're missing, you don't know what your homeland is, but you are still aching for it. I don't know if that makes sense, but is there like a sense of that A desire moment? to sort of yeah. know more no, about yeah. your yeah. homeland and be yeah. more connected to it. Yeah, definitely. In an inward sense, when you know more about your homeland or if you feel like you go home to your homeland, you also know more about yourself. I don't know if that's something uh, that is particular to diaspora or whether that's just... No, no, I understand like um, that kind of... You know, a lot of time when, you, when you're growing up, like just searching through history of, for example, like I know looking um, for things about Somali people in the past and finding things about like uh, the land of the Punt um, and that sort of thing of Somalis um, potentially uh, uh, ancient Egypt ancient Egypt coming from Somalia basically mm-hmm. and, and that being the history of it and, and things like that those little nuggets of history that, that are kind of like washed away and you find it, it it's very it yeah. resonates and it shows that you know I come from a place that isn't um, all pirates and mm-hmm. and and terrorists and and yep. things that are painted in in the mainstream. Yeah, mm. you know it's interesting thinking about like your history. Um, and I feel like very disconnected to my history. Um, very disconnected. But having said that, personally, I feel like you can feel um, a, people need to have that belonging or connection or feeling to something whatever it is. And a lot of people find that in God. A lot of people find that in their heritage. People find it in different things. For me, I feel like my faith is really important to me. And I feel like I get a lot of belonging from that and like self-assurance from that. So me necessarily not knowing too much about my, you know, like going, being able to go back to where my dad is. Like, I don't call that home. People, a lot of people saying back home and stuff. I, I don't feel like it's home. Yes, I feel like it's like where I'm from, that's like a big part of my identity, but I don't feel home when I think of overseas. Is it, is it difficult because of being biracial, for example, yeah. and having that... Yeah, I um, think very much so. And having that sputtering of, 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 of culture yeah. and having to feel like you have to choose? Is, is that an issue? Uh, oh, I used to feel like I have to choose because people always kept asking me, like, where are you from? Like, no, where are you... Re-? Like, are you more Turkish or are you more African, you know? But uh, no, I definitely feel like it does because I am from like having two different backgrounds. I feel like that. But I also feel like it just adds more to who I am. It really does. Because the more languages you speak, the more cultures you know, you're actually a more worldly person. And I think if you only belong to one culture or you only know about one cultures or two cultures, then your I guess your worldview can be quite limited because you're only seeing it from that lens. So, yeah, I feel like ha- having different um, cultures, it adds in a way as well, not just makes, like, I don't feel, like, more disconnected because I'm more, like, from other places, but I feel, if it makes sense, I feel, like, more of a person because I have more that adds to me than just being from one place. Does that make sense? Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I-, I think that's a good place to, to end Cool. Uh, the interview. Thank you for coming on the show. It's Thanks been for having a pleasure me. Pleasure having you. Glad on. I could finally make it. Yeah, we've been yeah. trying to organize for a while, but you you made it. You're here. Cool, you're thanks. on the race card, and now you, thanks, you also man. said you're going to subscribe. So I am going to subscribe, but my phone's on four percent. But I'm and and also anyone listening, you know, also Guys, leave us reviews. Now. Review review us on iTunes. Review them right now. Otherwise, if you don't have reviews and people, because when I actually sign up to podcasts, I check reviews. Yeah. I'm like, Do they have good reviews? If they don't, I don't want to sign up. Exactly. So, so then, if you if you don't if they sign up and no, if you give a review, we go up in the iTunes charts and a lot more people can listen to the race card so do the us a review what's going on people this is a carla and right now you're listening to the race card big up now we're going into our segment the year that was where we highlight what has happened during the past year ahmed take it away 2015 yeah it was a pretty turbulent year we've seen changes in the australian politics scene with the dumping of former prime minister tony abbott and team australia Emergence of a more extreme right fueling their rhetoric with Islamophobia, Allah Ben Carson and Donald Trump, and a more and more sober moments like Miranda Tapsell's Logie speech, and 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 yeah, that which was which was very wonderful. I, I urge anyone who hasn't seen it to to have a look at it. Um, but as well, but also as we look back on 2015, I'd like to remember the story of Alan Kurdi. 
um, the young boy who lost his life, um, unfortunately, after dying at sea, but also how his death was instigated and, 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 and sent shockwaves um, and more specifically raised the consciousness in the West. And, and before the Alan Kurdi incident happened and, and his unfortunate death, this is what Tony Abbott had to say about refugees. Nope. Nope. Uh, we have a very clear uh, refugee and humanitarian program. Uh, it's a refugee and humanitarian program which has been modestly expanded uh, because we have stopped the boats and we are not going to do anything that will encourage people to get on boats. If we do the slightest thing to encourage people to get on boats, this problem will get worse, not better. The mood changed. Germany settled up to 6 million refugees. The previously unrelenting government under Tony Abbott reconsidered the policy to a small extent and completely altered the discourse and how we discuss refugees for a small period. It hit our heartstrings. For a split second, we valued the lives of the most at risk. But then it became yesterday's news and just like the tragedy of the Rohingyas, we forgot. And as time progressed, the humanity became ever more selective. The Christians in the Middle East are among the most persecuted people on earth. Wherever they go, they're not free to practice their religion. They're attacked, humiliated and mocked. If we can provide safe haven to them, then I say we should do it. And Cora Bernardi was the only MP, Liberal MP, to, to start highlighting which refugee, which refugees we should preference. And it became a trend, as well as Tony Abbott and his uh, uh, partner in crime, Erica Betts, started to give priority to Christians, uh, Christian refugees. I think the Australian people would see uh, a need for that to be a focus. Uh, in recent times, a number of world leaders have in fact indicated that the Christian community is the most persecuted religion. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase in the world and uh, I think the plight of Christians uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere has been considerable and if we can assist uh, that particular community I think most Australians would welcome that. And I guess the, the issue here is how we talk about refugees and how we're, we're picking which side to to go on. It has to be a Christian refugee opposed to a Muslim refugee. We can't have um, all refugees in, in, in sign of equality, if you will. And I mean, we talked about this um, a few episodes ago, but something that highlights to me in 2015 is the selective humanity that we had. The description of selective humanity is pretty succinct when you think about the way how we imagine and the way how we understand Christianity as a white religion, as a Western um, an assimilationist religion, even though its origins are very much based in the Middle East, um, very much based um, from people of color. The idea of having and accepting Christian refugees over other refugees, given what was already mentioned earlier, makes it a lot more bearable to the xenophobic mind to accept them versus people who are clearly othered, so religious minorities or non-religious people, um, who are also people of color, as well as Muslims. Um, it's a lot more easy to accept Christian people on the basis that they're going to be more assimilationist, even though that might not be the case. But it's just the way how we frame the narrative of Christianity, um, similar to the idea of white Jesus. It's the reason why it's a lot more palatable, because our imagination has already been conditioned to accept it as white. 
Yeah, I like when I was walking to the studio uh, this morning. No, not this morning. Just this afternoon with with Zach, we were like talking, and, and he was like to me, "What story are you gonna do today?" And I said, "Island Curtain." And he's like, "Oh yeah," because after that, it became an issue for 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 the West and and more more specifically, white people in the West. Um, he, this this little boy right there in the open, you can't do anything about it, can you? Yeah, it it became a white people problem when it started affecting white people and it became a global problem when it started affecting Europe. Um, prior to that, though, nobody really cared about Syrian refugees or Iraqi refugees or any sort of refugees, really. It was It's quite depressing, but that's the, the sad truth of it. Yeah, and, and I, I guess the issue that I had the, mo- the most... The thing is, you have to see a child at um, his most weakest and most vulnerable moment for you to start to have a sense of humanity. Um, it had to get to that. It had to get to a point of well, even even journalism and integrity to show that picture is questionable, to show that picture of this young boy, um, not older than maybe seven or uh, I think it was like four, five years. Four year. or something, yeah, yeah, really, really young. This is, this is a child showing a picture um, and then having that response. Why, why wasn't that response there initially? That's... <laughs> That's the question I'm asking myself. Like, you don't have this response to... It's it's really hard to say, but it's just the, the neglect of, of the West, the, the neglect of, you know, white society in general. And I, I hate to always have to bring this back to, to white people and to racism, but it is. Like, this is just pure racism. And I think it also, you know, speaking back to the whole Alan Cody, why didn't anyone, you know, care about Syrian refugees and refugees... Um, previously, well, that's the thing, right? I think when people started caring, we need to understand where, do that, where does that care come from? It's literally, it, it comes from a place of discomfort. It's not, I would argue, a genuine kind of um, empathy. It's more like, oh, I'm uncomfortable now because I'm seeing this cute boy who's just drowned. So let's just make things more bearable for myself. It's not even about improving the conditions of refugees. It's not about, you know, improving their situation, Clearly, yes, we still have selective humanity. And um, I guess 2015 was the year of selective humanity when we look back on the Paris attacks, when we look back on how we viewed um, uh, terrorism and how we viewed people losing life. Um, one thing I'll take away from 2015 was selective humanity. Put more beautiful people of colour on TV and connect viewers in ways which transcend race and unite us. That's the real Team Australia. You know, you look at the American TV, British TV, it, you know, has, uh, you know, it's got shows with d- different nationalities. And, 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 and not just putting nationalities just for the point of difference, but creating work that caters for um, actors of different backgrounds. In my mind, I see a line. And over that line, I see green fields and lovely flowers and beautiful white women with their arms stretched out to me over that line. But I can't seem to get there, no how. I can't seem to get over that line. That was Harriet Tubman in the 1800s. And let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. My favorite story of 2015 has to be the story of Ahmed the Clockboy Muhammad. Now, it sounds strange to say that this is my favorite story, considering how awful it actually is, but it's one of those stories that has a happy ending and wonderfully showcases black excellence, I think. So the story goes that on the 14th of, of September, sorry, uh, in MacArthur High School in Irving, Texas, a young boy decides to showcase his hard work and bring a homemade clock to school, thinking that it would impress his teachers. What he probably didn't expect was to, what he expected was to, you know, be praised for his efforts as any boy genius would expect, but probably didn't expect to be arrested in front of his peers and interrogated for up to an hour and a half. Now, the story goes that Ahmed brings in his clock to school, 
The clock beeps in class, the teacher notices it, confiscates it, reports it to the principal under the belief that it was a bomb. The police were called in, Ahmed was cuffed and taken into custody, he was fingerprinted, photographed, denied the right to see his parents. Now eventually he was released, but only to then be suspended from school. So the story goes viral. The citizens of the internet rallied behind Ahmed in support. Major tech companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, they are all offering Ahmed these amazing opportunities like visits and placements and internships. Ahmed even got a tweet from Barack Obama himself asking him to bring his clock over to the White House sometime. Now, eventually, Ahmed was offered and accepted a full scholarship by the Foundation for Education, Science and Community Development in Qatar, where the family eventually moved. But that was not before he sued the city of Irving for $15 million and demanded a written apology from the school, the mayor and the police chief. Now, this is why it's my favorite story, because it started off so horribly, but had the best outcome for Ahmed. But despite the the somewhat happy ending, there are still a few things that really bug me about this story. <clears throat> so for starters, the complete erasure of Ahmed's blackness is a, is quite problematic. Um, in all articles and publications which reference Ahmed's ethnicity, he's referred to as brown instead of black. Now, um, whether this is just a failing to understand the difference between black and brown or some sort of veiled attempt to distance success and white prejudice from the African-American community, I don't know, but it's certainly something to keep in mind. Um, and also... The reaction of the teachers involved in this scenario, you have so many people saying that it wasn't racist or, you know, the teachers, they were just acting in the best interests of the school. But the problem with that logic is that if it really was a bomb, the teacher would not have confiscated it. He would not have calmly reported it to the principal. He he wouldn't have touched it. He would have called the police immediately, or she... They would have evacuated the entire school. If it was a bomb, they would have taken drastic measures to ensure the safety of all students and staff. Surely they would have called the bomb the squad. Bombs, exactly. But for some reason, they're just like, oh, no, I'm just going to take the bomb and take it to the principal's office, call the principal and then the police. Um, it, it just bothers me to see how many people are trying to defend such blatant racism under the misleading banner of oh safety or they were just doing their duty like no they weren't they were being racist it's racist it's demeaning and those responsible as well as anyone who tries to defend them should be ashamed but at the end of the day a young black boy has come out on top uh and this makes me very happy of my fellow black and fellow muslim friend on the other side of the world it's always nice to see someone like you succeeding isn't it it's always just like no like uh with with the the story of Muhammad, it it really um, kind of like uh, shows it, it wasn't necessarily like, the whole story didn't make sense. The whole story mm. did not make sense. If there was a bomb, you'd call the bomb squad. If you knew it was a bomb, you wouldn't hold him in the same room as a bomb when when the principal was talking with to him. all the other yeah. students as well. Yeah, no, no, because like they took so after they after they confiscated the bomb, they then took him to the principal's office, and then they uh, the principal held him down and said, "So, kid." What are you doing with this? And they talked to him and they talked to him. And then they had the, the bomb in this... Uh, not a bomb. It's a, it's a bloody clock. They had the clock with him in the principal's office, right? And uh, and then they, they talked to the, 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 um, the... They talked to Ahmed with the bomb in the same room. So if they were so afraid of the bomb, they would have gotten that bomb away from the premises. They would have gotten and done so many things, called the police, called this and that. They called the police and they ended up arresting him. For, for what reason? I feel like it was just they for show. They said uh, it was a faux bomb, which is why he ended up being suspended because it wasn't a real bomb. It was a fake bomb and he should be suspended for that. Like, that just makes no sense at all. What do you think, Amina? What are your thoughts on this story? Um, I find this particularly interesting, partially because I did grow up in Saudi Arabia and my school actually was attacked. And ever since that happened, which was around like the mid-2000s type of thing, um, in the first decade of the 2000s, um, ever since we have had procedures in place, for example, in case there was like, you know, people who came to attack the school, in case somebody decided to bomb the school... And I can vouch that no such procedure that we have ever practiced included containing students in the same place where a potential bomb threat is. 
Um, as a matter of fact, we actually had bomb shelters like within our school. So it seems strange. Like the whole story, as as previously mentioned, that you would put you know, school staff, um, school children, um, including Ahmed, actually, with a bomb. Um, I think my suspicion is they were already out to get Ahmed anyway. And this was just the icing on the cake, if that makes sense. It, it, this was just an opportunity for them to seize it. They were probably not a fan of Ahmed. I mean, if they were, they would have acknowledged and they would have awarded his brilliance. Um, I think Ahmed was trying to do what every brilliant kid would have tried to do, and that is to, you know, live up to your potential and try to win the, you know, the, I guess, the acknowledgement of your teachers. And he never got that. And even when he did create something that was pretty brilliant, he didn't. He still didn't get that. And what bugged me so much was there was someone like Richard Dawkins, a grown man, a grown man attacking a boy on social media. Should we even consider his opinion as valid? Is no, he? it's not. It's not valid. It's not even about it being valid. It's about him being so immature that he would then attack a boy and say, "Oh, that was not really a clock. It might not be a bomb, but that was not really a clock." Blah blah blah. And 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 then saying, oh, "Why did he get invited to this place? Why did he get invited to that place?" And then he one in one moment he actually compared Ahmed to um, I think I, I think a terrorist. Saying, and the only thing that linked them, the only thing that linked them was they were both children. That was yeah. the only thing. So he said, well, that was, he was just a child too. So what are you trying to say? So, so this kind of idea, it, it's so demeaning. Um, the, whole, the, whole kind of con- the whole situation was to demean Ahmed. And, and now he's gone on and he's visited the White House. He's visited um, you, Google. He's visited all these amazing places. And now he's off to... Um, Qatar. And, and one of the things that I think that uh, when we don't when we think about race, we don't think about this aspect of it. Imagine being, and this is why fragility at its at its, at its most, um, I guess, strongest, and at, at, its, at its probably at its worst. Imagine being um, a teacher or or, or a stu- or um, a colleague of Ahmed's, and you see how brilliant he is, but everything that is uh, that everything that is told to you that you are, you should be better than him. Everything that you'll learn from, from day dot, you should be better than him. So that aspect creates this sort of, why is he so good? And, right. and that happens so often. I, I see, like, can you imagine being told from the moment you're born that you should be better than everyone just because you're white? Right. And then that, that kind of... So that's why I wasn't surprised when this story happened. Because so often we see people... Um, that, so often we see people offended by just someone doing what they feel they're passionate about just no. someone succeeding someone yeah. of color succeeding and no. you're does it, do you think um this sort of ties back into the whole problem of his erasure the erasure of his blackness oh definitely but also when people talk about um him being brown and and as sudanese north sudanese people being brown the reason that is is because they were colonized by 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 Arabs and a lot of time there was there was sexualized violence they lost their language um, a lot of North Sudanese people speak Arabic not because they want to because they had to so so that even idea of erasure is is spawned through that idea so that in its own right is is, is very white supremacist and and when you think about North Sudan why do you think North Sudanese people are lighter than than South Sudanese people that, that's your question like that that's the thing that's the reason. Because of that Arab blood. <laughs> I'm banning all rap this year at the awards. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love hip hop. Obviously. But tonight, it's all about soul. Okay. Hold on a second. I got another call. Wait a minute. No, honestly, man, you are my favorite artist out right now. But I ain't letting anybody in with no littles and youngs and they name. Yeah. Hang on one second. I'm sorry, y'all. Uh, yes. Who is this? Iggy Azalea. Yeah, hey. 
Oh, no, 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 no. You can come, because what you're doing is definitely not rap. Yeah. Looking back at 2015, I remember how rape culture showed its ugly face in Australia's immigration policies. Um, openly draconian, Australia has not been shy about its ruthless, inhumane immigration policies, most notably its use of indefinite mandatory detention of asylum seekers arriving by boat. Australia's use of border control and limiting people of color while admonishing indigenous peoples is not a new phenomenon. This is merely a recap of a legacy and an ongoing continuum of a racist institutions built on racist foundations. White Australia policy remixed, basically. Because the Australian population and government is largely... Um, largely operates through the out-of-sight, out-of-mind framework, it is important to retell and remember some of the stories that we can sometimes conveniently brush away. One such story to me is the case of Avian, whose story we came to know around October, one of many stories and one of many people who have asserted that they have been sexually assaulted inside Australia's offshore detention centers by authorities within these centers. The significance of this harks back to the irony of Australia's right-wing argument for an even more stringent border force, which is essentially that incoming asylum seekers are illegals, read non-human, therefore do not need to be treated humanely, and that they bring with them crime and violence, such as rape. This is in direct contrast, um, stark contrast, to Australia's own rape culture, to their own brand of misogyny and the patriarchy. When people like Abiyan are assaulted within these Australian-sanctioned detention centres, there seems to be less action or outcry and no empathy within the Australian mind. It is clear that Australia is not an anti-rape culture. It, is, it just sees rape as inherently othered and that white culture is inherently free of such violence. So instead, the Australian mind claims such assaults in detention centres are fictitious and ruled a plot to sway away from their path of draconian practice. And if present, um, that these assaults are real, if they do present that these um, assaults are real, government officials and authorities lie that such survivors and victims of sexual assault are being cared for, which is an easy cop-out. But a detention center that continues to disallow and disrespect body autonomy at large from poor conditions, sanitary and hygiene conditions included, it is a far reach for the government to claim that survivors and victims of sexual assault like Avian are given any substantial care, all the while perpetually deteriorating the morale, mental health and furthering psychological distress of the survivors and victims who are left traumatized and re-traumatized. For the record, Avian did not receive care when she was moved from Nauru to Australia and was not granted the abortion she, she sought before secretly being sent back. She has since been sent back to Australia for a second time. I suppose this case is symbolic of Australia's immigration policy, human ping pong. And that is a story that I will take away from 2015. But also, do you know what I think when it comes to people like Abian? Women like Abian, people will think, oh, she's Somali. Oh, she, she, it doesn't matter. She, she's from she's from the third world. It doesn't matter because she doesn't already have rights. Because this idea of of people from the third world, women from the third world, is that they're where they are right now is better than the where they'd ever be, and and all and all that rhetoric and and kind of saying, oh, well, she probably has ha, has gone through FMD and and all these kinds of horrible. Uh, FMG, all these horrible things. So wh wh why should we show her any kind of respect? I think when we talk about things like that, our baselines are somehow weird and different. Um, our baseline should not be based on the bare minimum, should not be based on inhumanity. Our baseline should be justice. Our baseline should be, I don't even want to say like the bare minimum. It shouldn't, the baseline shouldn't be bare minimum. It should honestly be justice. Um, but it's very telling when a people say that, oh, they're better off over here, so they should be thankful or whatever. And thankful for what? In these detention centers, people are being traumatized. And in some cases, people who have endured war, who have endured um, persecution, actually become more psychologically distressed in these detention centers, which is even more telling. Does that mean to say that Australian immigration policy is more draconian than what they have been fleeing? I mean, it, this, this is all very hypothetical, but it could well but be the case. You don't even know because they don't let journalists exactly. there. They don't let people who might be able to report things 
even come to Nauru or Manus, be able to come to these detention centers. So why is there so much secrecy? What are they hiding? I mean, I think I think the very fact that people are willing to kill themselves in these detention yeah. centers after fleeing such horrible conditions already, I mean, that just speaks for itself. If you're fleeing such terrible you know, practices in your home country, war and violence and oppression, and you come to this place, which is supposed to be better and safer and nicer and like all of these wonderful things that they keep advertising it as, but then they're killing themselves in there. Like that just shows that place is a lot worse than where they came from. Definitely. And and when we think about, um, if just think about this, right? If um, we're talking about a place where the media are not allowed to go, where, sec- where secrecy is rife and uh, where conditions are so horrible that people like Abiyan can't even get an abortion um, after being assaulted, sexually assaulted. Um, you, you wouldn't think this is Australia. You would, you would say, oh, it's this country in, um, in Africa or, 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 or the Middle East or somewhere down there. You know, it never, North doesn't Korea. happen. It North sounds Korea. like North Korea. <laughs> yeah, North Korea, basically. If it, so, so what kind of, wh- where is that moral compass that we say the West have? Where is that moral compass that Australians say we always give people a fair go? Where is that fair go? Exactly. And I think, you know, it comes back to the idea that, you know, it's all in secrecy. It's also out of, you know, it's offshore as well. It's not even out. Of, it's out of sight, out of mind, essentially. That's pretty much what they're doing. They're having this whole rhetoric of we stop the boats. Um, no, you have not. You're actually just increasing their pain and uh, you're doing it more in secret. And you're, you're just more cunning about it. That's that's all that's that's all that's happening. And yeah, you're stopping the boats, but you're stopping people fleeing persecution. You're stopping people from finding safe haven. If that's something to be proud of, then well done. I think also people, they don't really want to take part, or they don't want to accept, rather, that they are taking part in a system where they are perpetuating violence against other people. Um, They like to think that them going into war or supporting the war or terror or whatever is in the name of their security, in the name of their freedom, so-called freedom, um, and their security and their, um, what's the word, stability. And by accepting that they are actually perpetuating this harm and this violence against, you know, people overseas, but also people who are coming to their shores or trying to come to their shores, um, fleeing those persecutions that they are being um, experiencing in their countries of conflict, um, it's it's very confronting, I guess, for um, people. Uh, they don't want to accept that, that they are actually perpetrators of violence and not the ones who are about to receive it. <laughs> yeah, that in a nutshell. But uh, I think with I think we're almost hitting our our end to to our recap show. It's been it's been wonderful looking back at 2015, and I think there there are so many stories that we haven't even touched that um, would have been that is worth talking about because lots of things happened in 2015. I remember a lot of change, a lot of change for the worse, a, a little bit of change for the good, um, and. And yeah, 2015, we say goodbye and we welcome 2016. This is our first show for 2016, mind you. Just, yeah. just letting y'all know. It's his first show, you know, and we gave you a New Year's special, mashing <laughs> up all our shows and interviews from um, the previous year and, and giving you a little bit of a holiday treat. We're back now and hopefully for, for good. I say that with bated breath. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I guess we'll be saying goodbye. Um, Zach, you're almost a veteran now. This is your, I think, your second it's show. It's my second show. Not quite there yet. I'll, you're, you're, I'll get the hang of it by the third, at least. I, I Surely. Think, I, think, <laughs> I think you've got it. But anyway, we're going to say goodbye now. Thanks for listening, listeners. Um, uh, if you're first-time listener and you want to get uh, subscribed, um, you can find us on iTunes, searching Racecard, Acast, um, the Podcast Republic app for um, Android listeners. You can find us on Twitter, at the race card you can find us on facebook searching um facebook.com forward slash race show and you can also find us on mixcloud we're on we're everywhere just you know searching the race card and, and you you'll be found <laughs> uh goodbye from me farewell from moi and thank you so much for listening <laughs> <laughs>